Well, welcome to you all, and welcome to you who are online. Uh, just note about our service, at the end of service, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper. I, I trust you saw the elements back there. If you need some, maybe now's the time to go out and grab them would be great. Well, this is uh, the interesting Sunday throughout the, the year. It's the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's, and often I... I try to preach a, a more challenging message, just try to think about what's going to take place in the, in the year to come, what, what's your life going to be like in 2021, and hopefully it's better than our lives were in 2020, um, but it's, uh, it's really an opportunity for that, and as I thought, you know, rather than getting back right into Acts, uh, I just really was drawn to uh, a book, uh, this book by Dane Ortland, um, entitled Gentle and Lowly. And uh, Ryan Brown handed this book out to the elders, to Brian and Darren and, and I. And they gave it to us as gifts. It was about two months ago. And uh, he just encouraged us to read it because he said that it's impacted him quite a bit. And uh, just over the last two months, I've been reading this book. We, as elders, we've just been starting each of our meetings by just share one quote or something from the book that has really encouraged you. And uh, as I just finished the book this past week, and uh, so I slowly read it. I just sort of savored on it. It's not, not the book I just fanned through. I just really read it slowly and just consistently and really, really encouraged by it. Uh, I can see how it impacted Ryan. Uh, Tina, did you read this book yet? Half of it. Okay, you're, you're working through it. Um, but, but I've never read a book quite like this. Um, it, it, and what I like to do is preach a sermon quite unlike any sermon I've ever preached, because what I want to do is really preach, preach this book to you, preach the message of this book to you, um, unashamedly borrowing from this book. At times, I'll tell you, I'm quoting from Dane Ortland, who, by the way, you went to college, Darren, with Dane, and um, he's now in, in Wheaton, he works for a Crossway publisher, and um, at times, I'll tell you that I'm quoting Dane Ortland, at times, I'll just quote him. So just consider the whole thing um, borrowed, not quite plagiarized, borrowed. My write-up, I'll, I'll show you all the quotes where that is if you want to read that. But just assume everything is here uh, from this book. And uh, just maybe, I'm thinking, it might, um, might, might encourage you to buy the book, might encourage you to read it perhaps in 2021, 20, uh, see the impact it's made upon Ryan and upon me. And, and I think that... Um, the thing about this book is it's, it's quite unique, and it's a book about who Jesus is. Not, not in the sense of his being, as, as though he's God the Son, second person of the Trinity, um, nor so of his work, what he did in the incarnation, we celebrated Christmas season, or, or what he did upon the cross, dying for our sins, we might be justified in his sight. This book isn't about those things. Um, as, as much as those things are, are true and good, I've read lots of books about Jesus, um, about his sinless life upon the earth, um, upon his being and how the Trinity relates and, and everything there and, and his, his nature, his sinless nature and his death and the implications of the cross. And how is it that we who believe are justified in God's sight? Like how exactly does that work? And different things theories about how that all works. I've read lots of books like that, of how God can forgive us because wrath was poured out on Jesus, right? But, but this book is really something else, okay? It's, it's different than all those sorts of books. It's a book about Jesus, but 
It's a book about the heart of Jesus. Just what he feels towards us. Um, what his attitude and mindset is towards us. And how he deals with us in our sin. And how he loves us. And now that's part of his, his being. You know, the, the difference might be a little bit like knowing a, knowing a, a person and knowing about a person. Right? Like, like, you all know me. Many of you know me as a, a pastor. Um, some of you know me, hopefully all of you know me as a friend as well. Um, my college friends know me as a physics major. Um, those who worked with me in the hospital before I, I became a pastor knew me as an IT professional who would come and solve all their problems, who would put a smile on their face. That's what they knew about me. Brian Mulder knows what a great basketball player I am, right? Um, Adam Lask, I'm not sure he is today, knows me as a Bears fan. By the way, I got my Bears socks on today. (laughs) So I'm not sure about this. I think if they win out, they might make the playoffs is what I I hope. I mean... you Packers fans, like, you have nothing to cheer for. You always win, right? For us, we're like always on the edge. But people know me as a Bears fan. People at Walmart know me as a customer. Uh, my pool buddies know me as a competitor. Um, but all these things describe me and focus on my, my position, maybe, or my, my status, or, or my accomplishments, or my talents, or my interests. But nobody really knows me like Yvonne does, just being my wife. She sees me at all my moments, at my best moments and at my worst moments. And she knows my heart better than any of you do. Um, She knows what hurts me and she knows what encourages me. She knows what I really feel about people because I complain to her and she hears my complaints and she feels my pains and she shares my joys. And that's a bit about what this this book is like. It's about it's about the heart of Jesus. What what really concerns him? What is he like? What what is he, if you will, at home? Like what what motivates him? What what drives for him? And particularly one of the things that we see is that he cares for people. And he cares a lot. And the particular group of people that he cares for are the the hurting and the helpless. In fact, if you look there at the the subtitle of this book, the subtitle is this, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And that's really what, what this book is about. It's just trying to delve deeply into the heart of Christ. Like, what, what is it that's in his core being that really comes out towards us? And I just say this, learning about really the tender heart of Jesus has been helpful for my soul. And I hope it's helpful for yours as well. So I want to begin just as I preach this book. My, my outline is not his outline at all. I just kind of randomly pulling some quotes from Dane Ortland. But he begins in chapter one by by sharing something that his father taught him. His father's a, a former pastor. Um, I have utmost respect for him. Uh, Ray Ortland Jr. is a pastor in um, Nashville, Tennessee, wherever Dylan is. Uh, he was he's not here in your, your chair where Okay, he's, he was a former pastor of a, of a church in Nashville, just exudes grace, exudes mercy and kindness. Um, he learned something from Charles Spurgeon, and uh, he related it to Dane. And his father, Dane's father, told him this. He said that Spurgeon said, in, in the four gospel accounts, there's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. 
And you think about everything that we learn about the gospel, in, about Jesus in the Gospels. We, we learn about his birth and his ministry and his teachings and his travels, his, his prayer life, his sermons, his response to sermons, how he understood the Old Testament. He understood himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, how he endured his unjust suffering and shameful death and astonishing resurrection. But really, there's only one place in which Jesus says, I, I, I want to show you my very heart. And it's found in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, which really is the the core text of uh, this book. This book is named Gentle and Lowly, based upon what Jesus says here in this text. You can open your Bibles there or turn turn them on if you want. It's It's on the screen. Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You can just see the, the words there about gentle and lowly. And, and this is who Jesus is. Dane Ortland writes, in the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is, we are not told that he is austere and demanding in heart. We are not told that he's exalted and dignified in heart. We are not even told that he is joyful and generous of heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Gentle simply means meek, means humble, It means that he's not trigger happy or harsh. He's not quick to judge. He is the most understanding person in the universe. His natural posture is not a pointing finger in anger, but open arms ready to embrace. That's gentle. And and, and lowly means basically that he is accessible. And again, Ortland points out how surprising this is, that Jesus is acceptable. He says this, For all His resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, His supreme uniqueness and otherness is like no one human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites, no hoops to jump through, no minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simple, right? All you need to do is open yourself up to him. It's all he needs. He's lowly at heart. His arms are wide. You simply need to open yourself up to him and he will embrace you. Now we see the invitation there in in verse 29 when Jesus says, come to me. He invites us to, to come to him. It means that we have access to him. And all we simply need to do is turn from our ways. And acknowledge that we need help and we need to come to Jesus. If you continue in verse 28, you see who it is who qualifies for coming to Jesus. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. It's those who labor. It's those who are heavy laden. Those who are working hard, who who feel their weakness, who feel their burden, who, who feel they need help where there's just a, a burden upon themselves and they just they just want to get rid of that burden, just want to get rid of that heaviness. The, the picture of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, a Christian, when he walks around with this big burden on his back. 
That's the one that Matthew 11 is talking about. The one with the burden who just wants to, to get off of that. It's too much for me. It's unable for me to bear. You come to Jesus. And His arms are there to take that burden off your back. And that's the promise at the end of verse 28. I will give you rest. That is completeness and wholeness and satisfaction. That is Christmas time when all the presents are done. And you've just feasted. And you're just sitting there enjoying the moment of the family, the moment of all the food you've eaten, the moment of the day. I mean, one of the things interesting, I told you that we, we celebrated Christmas a week early because of our kids coming from out of town. And it felt like Christmas Day inside, but there was still a bustle outside. And, and one of the things I like about Christmas Day is that like cars aren't driving around on Christmas Day. We don't hear Perryville and the, the car is just streaming up and down. They're just quiet. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Just rest. So are you burdened this morning? Are you discouraged? Are you weak? Come to Jesus. Has sin got the best of you? Then come to Jesus and find your rest in Him. He doesn't say, to, oh, you got to reach up to this bar. you got to do these things. No, He just says, come. Come as you are. That's what He says. He's willing to take you in. And we see this first in his earthly ministry. Just think about the life of Jesus upon earth. Uh, when suffering people came to him, what was Jesus' heart and attitude towards them? He helped them, right? He brought them in. He gladly received them. Willingly he did. Do you remember the leper? That, that man who had that... Uh, that skin disease, which was so awful, it ostracized him from society. And not only was it awful and debilitating in and of itself, but it was highly contagious, and so he stayed off. And, and he told Jesus, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. That is, if, if it's your deepest desire, if your heart is to heal me, then you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I will be clean. I mean, there, we talk about the will of God. What is it that God wants? What is his desire? I mean, when you say the, the will, it's almost like what's his deepest desire? What, what's the overriding will of God? And here it is with Jesus. It is to heal and to heal this, this leper. Or, or do you remember when uh, Jesus was teaching in this house? This house was just packed with people. And these friends had a, a, a paralyzed friend and they had him on a cot and they're bringing him to Jesus. And they couldn't get in the door. You remember what they did? Kids, what they do? Exactly right. They start going up and they start digging a hole in the roof and he, he's coming down. It's interesting. As the, the paralytic is being laid down, come, come down, before they even say anything, Jesus saw their faith. Is what it says in Matthew 9, verse 2. And says, take heart. My son, your sins are forgiven. It shows just the eagerness of Jesus to heal. He, he doesn't even wait for them to ask anything. I mean, it's, it's obvious, right, that they're, that they're coming down, what, what, what they're looking for. But he was so eager to heal that he did so without anybody even asking. It's almost as if Jesus couldn't stop himself from healing the paralytic. He was so excited about doing so, so willing, so desirous to see this man get up and walk out of there. As a demonstration that he was able to forgive sins. And, and those are just but a few, few demonstrations of the heart of Jesus. Willing to help. Longing to heal. And you just think about the ministry of Jesus when he was with the crowds. Healing the crowds. 
was with the people, he found time for everybody. That's the heart of Jesus. And then, and then when you see the crowds, oftentimes you have the word compassion linked with crowds. So when he looks at the crowds, he feels compassion. Just consider the following verses. Matthew 14, 14. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. Why did he heal their sick? Because he had this compassion for them. <clears throat> this word compassion, when I think about this word, it really means bowels. It's like the emotions that, that come from up from within. Um, you know, it's the ancient way of referring to what, what rises up from someone's innermost core. And I think of my sister, my sister Sonia, who, like, when she sees someone hurting, she hurts as well. And when she sees something going bad, her stomach just, just churns because she is so compassionate and she's so involved and engaged in the troubles and trials of others' lives. And that's what Jesus was. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He felt for them, and so he healed them. Or when they were hungry, Matthew fifteen thirty-two, I have compassion on the crowd. And he fed the thousands because they had a little hunger pain. Because they'd been with him for some time and they hadn't any food. And so he felt their hunger pains. And when he saw that they were sheep without a shepherd and being guided and mis- he had compassion on them, Mark six thirty four, and he began to teach them many things. This compassion of Jesus in his earthly ministry is what drove him and compelled him to have this overwhelming compassion and heart for sinners and those who were hurting. It's his compassion that, that wipes the tears from the woman weeping at, at his feet because of her sins. It's the compassion of Jesus that weeps for Jerusalem when Jerusalem is unrepentant towards the things of God. And Jesus, by the way, was drawn to the sinful and the hurting. And again, Dane Ortland says this, Time and again, it's the morally disgusting, the socially reviled, the inexcusable and undeserving who do not simply receive Christ's mercy but to whom Christ most naturally gravitates. He gravitates to the morally disgusting and the socially reviled. That's who he moves towards. He is, by his enemy's testimony, the friend of sinners. Luke 7, verse 34. And this really then, this quote from Dane Ortland is really the, the, the main thought of the book that has struck me so much about gentle and lowly. He says this, The dominant note left ringing in our ears after reading the Gospels and, and that's just like a broad reading, right? When you, when you read all the Gospels, the dominant theme you get is the most vivid and arresting element of the portrait is the way in which the Holy Son of God moves towards, he touches, heals, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it, yet truly desire it. Let's read that again. The dominant note left ringing in our ears after reading the Gospels. The most vivid and arresting element of the portrait is the way in which the Holy Son of God moves toward, touches, heals, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it, yet truly desire it. And really, that main thought really struck me. Uh, just like reading through this book, you know, I've read lots of books about Jesus. But really, to, to bring it down to this is that, that his compassion and his lowliness, his gentleness, and his meekness drives him towards the weak and hurting people. 
See, when Jesus sees people that the world despises, he doesn't shun and go the other way as the religious elite did of the day, the Pharisees. No, he moved towards them. He approached them. He sought them out. When, he, when people were trapped in their sin, he pursued them and offered forgiveness to them. And I just really have been struck at my own actions, how I think I'm unlike Jesus. Like, I don't naturally go towards hurting people. Hurting people means my time and my effort. I, I naturally go away from hurting people. I don't naturally seek the down and outers. They just suck my time and are a burden to me. I'm not naturally a friend of sinners, but Jesus was and Jesus is. And the reason he is, is because he is gentle and lowly. This is like part of his being. He just doesn't do that. It's not like he shows mercy. No, he's merciful. So he shows mercy. It's not that he he just shows compassion. No, he's compassionate. That's why he shows compassion. It's not that he's gentle. No, he's deeply gentle in and of himself. And that's why he's gentle towards others. And pursuing after the hurting is the joy of his heart. Ortland uh, shares this illustration. He says, A compassionate doctor who has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He has his, had his medical equipment flown in. He's correctly diagnosed the problem, and the antibiotics are prepared and available. He's independently wealthy and has no need of any kind of compensation financially. But as he seeks to provide care... The afflicted refuse. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal. They want to heal on their own terms. Finally, a few brave young men step forward to receive the care being freely provided. And what do you think the doctor feels at that moment? He's traveled all the way, whatever, around the world to this tribe. Needs. He's got the medicine, and they re, they refuse him. And, and then a few come. What's the doctor going to feel? Maybe joy, happiness, delight. This the whole reason he came was to be able to have the joy of giving this medicine to the people to really heal what their problem is. And his joy only increases the more that people are coming to him for the medicine to solve their sickness, whatever it is. It's the whole reason he came. Does that sound familiar? Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees who questioned his disciples of Jesus? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There he's given that picture about a physician going And the physician doesn't need to go to those who, whatever, are healthy. He goes to those who are sick. He gives mercy to the the sinners and those who aren't well. And by the way, this tracks back to the Old Testament, Hosea 6.6. God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's not the obedience that God desires and delights in. It's the extending of mercy to the undeserving. That is the very heart of Jesus, of what he does. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's why he was a friend of sinners. That's why he was with those who were down and out. That's why he was with those the world despises. Because it's his heart to help those people. In, in 1 Corinthians 1, when it talks, Paul's talking about the church and who the church is comprised of. 
He said he didn't choose the noble and the lofty. When God set up his church, he chose the abased and defiled and, and unseemly. That's how God builds his church. With those who, who aren't deserving, who are the riffraff of society, who desire the medicine that he brings. And the whole reason why Jesus came was to share the medicine that he brought to those who are suffering. And when sinners come to Jesus, what sort of attitude does he have? Is it not the same as the doctor has? Is it not of joy? Remember in Luke chapter 15, the story of the, the lost coin and the lost uh, sheep and the lost son? That every time when you find when he finds it, right? When, when it comes back, when the woman finds the coin or the shepherd finds the sheep or the father finds the son, what is there? There's joy. There's happiness. And Jesus even says there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. See, God delights in his innermost being. What is it that makes God happy? What makes him happy is bringing sinners to himself. Of embracing those who see their need because he's gentle and lowly. That's what makes him happy. And it was his joy of seeing the sick and needy and sinful turn to him that caused him to go to the cross because that was the only way. Hebrews twelve three for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is in heaven now, deriving joy in his heart when those who are sinning and those who are suffering are coming to him. Nothing delights his heart more than than people coming to him who, who, who are just just broken and needing him. And, and Jesus is ready and willing and desiring and seeking his own joy in bringing sinners to himself. And that comes from his earthly ministry. But we even see in Hebrews 12 that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising his shame. But now we see at the right hand of God. What about his heavenly ministry? <clears throat> well, his heavenly ministry is really his heavenly mercy. And we read of his heavenly mercy in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And there's Jesus in heaven. And then it's we who need it. Draw near to him. He what? He gives grace. And he gives mercy. And it's received by us. And it's because of his earthly ministry that he will have a compassionate heavenly mercy. This is one of the implications of Christmas, right? That Jesus took on flesh and blood. That he might know and understand and experience the weaknesses and temptations that we all face. He knows what it's like to feel pain and sorrow and abandonment and betrayal. He knows what it's like to suffer pain upon the cross. He knows the shame of being mocked for everything that he wasn't. And so what we experience is not unique. He knows our experience. He's in heaven, fully able to understand our weaknesses. In fact, even there in verse 15, he says he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Or it's not. He's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Because in every respect, he was tempted and yet 
he was without sin. And, and that's why he can deal gently with us. It's because he's walked with us. It's the reality of Christmas. See, it's not that Jesus can relieve us from our troubles like the doctor prescribing medicine. It's also that before any relief comes, he's with us in our troubles like a doctor who endured the same disease. So he's not just one who's, who's healthy, just dosing out all this, but, but he was one who was, who was with us. And in the same disease, whatever, walking among humanity and seeing and experiencing everything here. Jesus comes as a doctor like us. He's walked our road. And since he has a heart to help us, he helps us. And since that is his deep innermost being, that's what he does. Ortland says this, he says, Jesus can no more bring himself to stiff arm you than the loving father of a crying newborn can bring himself to stiff arm his dear child. See a picture of a newborn crying and fussing. And it's only the hard-hearted parent who will take that child and thrust him aside or, or do him harm. It's just a baby, right? Needing, needing hunger or needing a diaper change or something. Just crying out. And Ortland says that, that God will no, longer, no more stiff-arm us than a father will stiff-arm that child. But we'll take that child in. If we're just crying and bawling like an infant... That's how he receives us. He longs to give us mercy and grace in time of need. And so, church family, this, I just tell you, look to Christ. He deals gently with you. As long as you fix your attention upon your sin, you're going to fail to see how you'll be safe. But if you look to Jesus, you'll fail to see how you can be in danger. Looking inside ourselves, we anticipate harshness from heaven. But looking to Christ, we can anticipate only gentleness, mercy, and grace. As Hebrews 4, 15 and 15, 15, 16 says. You know, and oftentimes, right, when coming to Jesus, we can often think that Jesus wearies in us coming to him so often in our sorrows and our weaknesses. But, but he doesn't. Ortland says this. He says, Jesus does not get flustered or frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness for renewed pardon with distress and need and emptiness. He says that's the whole point. He says that's what he, he came to heal. He went down into the horror of death and plunged out the other side in order to supply limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. Remember Lamentations three twenty three, His mercies are what? Are new every morning. Limitless supply. Psalm 130, and with him is abundant redemption. Then Ortland adds, he says, Jesus doesn't want us to draw on his grace and mercy only because it vindicates his atoning word. In other words, right, it's not just, oh, come to me for mercy. Yes, I died on the cross and you come in and now we're satisfied. Yes, what I did was right. It's not just to vindicate him. Rather, Ortland says, that he wants us to draw on his grace and mercy because it is who he is. He drew near to us in the incarnation as Christmas so that his joy, his joy and ours could rise and fall together. His in giving mercy and ours in receiving it. Parents, you know what this is about, right? When it's Christmas Day and you have gifts to give to your children. Who gets more joy? You and the giver or them in the receiving? 
Just think about my son even. He, he said, Dad, I can't wait till I, I give you this present. And he was so excited for this present. And um, I, I forgot to, I didn't bring it today. I'm just thinking about the illustration right now, in fact. But <clears throat> he gave me a mug. And uh, on the cross, it said, uh, the world's greatest video editor. And then it crossed out video editor because I'm not the world's greatest video editor. But it said, the world's greatest dad is what it said. And it was such a, a precious, that's a, that's a mug. It's a coffee mug for me. And um, just like so, like I, I, I so know how amateurish I am at uh, video editing. But he so expressed his love to me in giving that gift. So who gets the greater joy? Do I get the greater joy or does Jesus, or does SR get the greater joy in giving that gift? It's like a, a win-win situation here also. And so when, when Jesus gives mercy, he gets joy. And when we receive grace, we're, we're happy that, that the condemnation isn't coming to us, right? That, that God's being merciful to us and we're given the grace to be strengthened up and endure through these things. So there, there's, this, there's this working both ways. And that's who God is, that he longs for that. And some might say, oh, we need to be measured and careful how much we come to Jesus. We should be careful about how much we should draw on the mercy and grace of Christ. But Ortland says this. He says, would a father with a suffocating child want his child to draw on the oxygen tank in measured, reasonable way? Oh, I know you can't breathe very well, right, because of some whatever. But don't breathe too much, right? That oxygen tank's only got a little bit. Like, No, he's going to say, breathe. And so with mercy and grace and freeness and lightening our burden, God wants to lighten our burden. We just need to come to him. We're suffering people. And God delights to give us oxygen that we might live in abundance. But more than just help us, he, he saves us and he saves us to the uttermost. Look at Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Again, this is one of those verses that speak about Jesus in heaven praying. It says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Here we see Jesus saving to the uttermost. That is, the picture there is almost like a a race. You're running, and he's going to save you to the finish line. He's going to keep you and protect you and and bring you there. Because he always lives to make intercession for them. He's, He's always praying. And... Jesus can save us to the uttermost, and we who know our hearts understand what that means. That we're to the uttermost of sinners, and we need the uttermost Savior. And that He will bring us to that end. We are secure in Jesus. Listen to the promise of John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. This verse was one of John Bunyan's favorite verses. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, wrote a whole book on this one verse. And Dane Ortland then quotes Bunyan, elaborating on the security we have in Jesus. And Bunyan writing in the 17th century, so he's got some King James English here, but I think you can understand. He says, they that are coming to Jesus Christ are oftentimes hardly afraid that Jesus Christ will not receive them. This observation is implied in the text. I gather it from the largeness and openness of the promise. I will in no wise cast out, right? I'll I'll never cast them out. It says, I will no wise cast them out. For had there been a a proneness, had there not been a proneness of us to fear casting out, Christ need not 
have, have waylaid our fear as he does by this great and strange expression, in no wise. For in this word, in no wise, cuts the throat of all objections. And this is why Jesus can save to the uttermost. And Bunyan then, then proposes these objections and then says, no, in no wise I will cast you out. But I'm a great sinner, say you. I will no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I'm an old sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I'm a hard-hearted sinner, say you. But I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I'm a backsliding sinner. And what does Jesus say? I will in no wise cast you out. But I've served Satan all my days, say you. I will in no wise cast you out. But I've sinned against light. But I will no wise cast you out. But I've sinned against mercy, say you. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will in no wise cast you out. Just the thrust there. It's like like Jesus is not going to cast us out. We come to him. That's the security we have. Finding our rest in him. Jesus is, is gentle and lowly. Has a heart to receive sinners. He's a high priest who will not cast away. Who will save us to the uttermost. Because he's always praying for us. I just Hebrews 7 again. So he ever lives. He always lives to make intercession for that. That means he, he ever lives. He All the time he's praying for his people. Those the Father has given to him. In fact, you know what? Jesus is praying for you right now. Even when you're not even praying for yourself. Even when you're negligent in your prayer life. And as Ortland confesses, our prayer life stinks most of the time. But Christ's doesn't. It never stops. But there are times even when the prayer life of Jesus steps up. It comes in the term advocate. In 1 John 2, 1, he says this. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's writing, right? He doesn't want us to sin. We don't want to sin. He's just saying in the heart, I'm writing to you that you live righteously. But if anyone does sin, you have this advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Advocate. This brings us into the courtroom. It's uh, the posture of a lawyer who argues a case on your behalf, argues before the father, the judge. He's the advocate. He's the one that takes your case. He's, he's your lawyer, if you will. And when do you need a lawyer? Before a court? When you've messed up really bad. That's when you need a lawyer. You got drunk, and you drove, and you killed somebody. You need a lawyer. You need an advocate. You need someone to step up to pray especially for you. You've embezzled millions and got caught. You need a lawyer. You need an advocate who's going to argue on your behalf. You lost your temper, struck one of your children, breaking their arms, sending them to the hospital. DCFS is involved. You may lose custody of your children. You need what? A lawyer. You need an advocate. And Jesus is our advocate Which means when things are at their worst, 
Jesus steps up his praying for us in advocating before the Lord. And when things are the worst, right? Certainly, right, you need to remember Jesus on the cross. Yes, he, he's the one. He atoned for my sin. And, and I stand righteous before God because of that. But also, as Dane Ortland tells us, we also need to remember not only that Jesus died for our sins, but we have an advocate in Jesus who's going to plead our case before the Father, who's going <coughs> to rise up, who's going to defend our cause based on his own sufferings and death. So, yes, we're justified by the death of Christ. But we also have Jesus rising up and arguing the death, his death on the cross for our forgiveness of sins. And so, in other words, what this does, it takes takes salvation beyond a mere formula. Um, I, I know some people who just see Jesus and see eternal life and see the gospel like this formula. Like you just accept, right? Acknowledge your sin and and. Pray to God and and just like like this this point. But what we have here is we're coming to a person, we're coming to Jesus, this advocate who's not just this objective reality out there. We're coming to a saving person. It's not merely a saving formula, but when we're in deep trouble, God's strength, the strength of Jesus, re- rises all the higher. And when his brothers and sisters fall, as Ortland says. When they fall and stumble, he advocates on their behalf because of who he is. He cannot bear to leave us alone and fend for ourselves. So he's like the family lawyer. The one who takes the case pro bono. Who sees a family member who's messed up in DUI and kills someone. And that family member steps in and says, I'm going to argue your case for you. I'm going to help. So when things are at your worst... And you sinned in the greatest of ways when sorrow is filling your heart and we've lost all hope. Just go to Jesus. Jesus in his heart is ready and willing to make your defense. So we come back here to Matthew 11 as we look to wind things down here. If you're heavy laden, go to Jesus. He'll give you rest. If you're burden of your sin, go to Jesus. He'll give you rest. He's gentle and lowly. And the yoke that you take upon yourself, which is meant to be this it's heavy, burdensome thing, is light. It's light and it's easy if you but follow Jesus. Well, there's more that I could say about this book, but I've kind of now's a good time to end. And some, I've, I've only quoted the first hundred pages of, of this book, first half of the book I've only quoted from. But I want to finish with one last final quote on page 100 that really helps us to to think about our life, think about 2021, to think about the new year, but then the next year and the next year and the next year. Ortland says this, let the heart of Jesus be something that um, is not only gentle towards you, but lovely towards you. If I may put it this way, romance the heart of Jesus. All I mean is this. Ponder him through his heart. Allow yourself to be allured. Why not build into your life unhurried quiet, where among other disciplines you consider the radiance of who he actually is, what animates him, what his deepest delight is. Or what his heart is. That's the subtitle of the book. What 
but Christ's heart. Why not give your soul room to be re-enchanted with Christ time and time again? And then, then he asks this great question. He says, when you look at the glorious older saints in your church, how do you think they got there? So picture with me someone 70 or 80, 90, believed in Christ a child, walked with him all that time. He says, when you look at the glorious older saints in your church, how do you think they got there? Sound doctrine? Yes, absolutely. Resolute obedience? Without a doubt. Suffering without becoming cynical? For sure. But maybe another reason, maybe the deepest reason, is that they have over time been won over in their deepest affections to a gentle Savior. Perhaps they have simply tasted over many years the surprise of a Christ for whom their very sins draw him in rather than push him away. Maybe they have not only known that Jesus loved them, but felt that Jesus loved them. I just encourage you even to think about 2021. Like, like what is it that's going to make you endure until the end? And it's sound doctrine, absolutely. Resolute obedience, right? I'm going to pursue, I'm going to follow hard after God, absolutely. Suffering without becoming cynical, right? When bad things happen, right? Just rather than just saying, oh, this life is bad. Just trusting God, you're good, and I don't know your purpose in my life, but I'm just going to trust it. But on top of that, I think just the, the kindness of God, his heart towards you. Uh, Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 says, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. You know, there are times when preachers try to bash hell and scare people with hell into heaven, right? Oh, you don't want to go there because it's so bad. That's not the kindness of God that grants, leads to repentance. It's the kindness of God is the message I'm talking about today. The loveliness of Jesus and the Savior is going to take and embrace you and to bring you in. That's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. That's the kind of... God that we ought to meditate upon, think about. And I think 2021, just, just really reflect on that. Maybe, maybe a New Year's resolution for you is to, is to get the book and to read it. I uh, just tried to whet your appetite for it uh, a little bit. And in the book, he also deals with God's judgment. And, and uh, it's interesting. He, he argues that's the strange thing of God, the characteristic of God, that he's uh, merciful, long-suffering. But the strange thing of God is that he does judge. But in his heart, deeply, is it's this compassionate heart of Jesus to come and help us. It's a profitable book. Think about the new year. So let's pray, and then we'll transition to the Lord's Supper. <laughs> Father, I would pray, as this sermon is unlike any sermon I've preached before, in terms of so heavily quoting from Dane Ortland. Um, in fact, even more so than church here realizes how many of my words just came straight from this book. Just thank you for the encouragement that that has been to my soul to think about <clears throat> Jesus and his tenderness and his mercy and his heart and his compassion. That's who Jesus fundamentally is. And he is our Savior. He is the one who brings us to the Father. 
And so, Lord, I pray that that we, as we think about a new year, I think about resolutions or how it is that we are going to try to live differently, perhaps. I pray that we might live in such a way that we just reflect upon the heart of Jesus to receive us. And as we then just come to him continually, moment by moment, as Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 5, praying always, right, rejoicing always. God, is a constant communion with you and with Christ and with your spirit, seeking strength and enablement to continue to walk and trust, oh God, that you will give us the, the grace and mercy to help in time of need. I, I pray for any here who don't know you, God, that just this message of the kindness of God might lead to repentance. God, someday in some way, just thinking, reflecting, maybe in 2021, when things get worse and worse and worse for them because of pursuit of their own sin and their own self-satisfaction, they find an end that that doesn't satisfy, God, that you would open their hearts to remember this message of the, the, the kindness and compassion and openness that you are, that you will receive those who turn from their sin, who trust in you. I just thank you for your word and just thank you even for how just the, this theme of gentle and lowly just opens up so, so readily in all the scriptures it speaks about Christ. So may he be our, our lovely Savior here at Rock Valley Bible Church as we look to him. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.